Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, for those of you that know me and for those new listeners here today, you can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online around the world and on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But you can find me live right here on Adrenaline Radio every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time where we bring go behind this behind the lens. Yes, behind the lens and below the line. Okay, and I apologize to Oren Moverman for saying that because I know Oren hates that that particular phrase. But uh every week you'll you'll hear from new and fascinating big and small talents. Today we have a very large talent joining us live at the quarter hour mark, an icon from the world of soap opera, a bigger icon in the horror genre. Barbara Crampton is with us live at 11.15. And Barbara will be talking about a new film she has that is premiering at Los Angeles Film Festival this coming week um, called Replace. It is, I will say this much about the film because Barbara and I will talk a little more about it. It is absolutely fabulous. It is directed, the cinematography of Tim Peter Kuhn is outstanding. It is mesmerizing. It is hypnotic. It, the color saturation just soars. Uh, it's uh, written and directed by Norbert Keel and co-writer Richard Stanley. So we'll talk about more about Replace when Barbara joins us at the quarter hour mark. And at the half hour mark, we have another acclaimed director joining us this week. Lorenzo Stefano. he is director of the new documentary, Hearing is Believing, that focuses on one and a half to two years in the life of musician and composition prodigy Rachel Flowers, one of California's own. Uh, Rachel is a remarkable, remarkable girl. What makes her talent even more remarkable is she is blind. So... We're going to talk in depth with Lorenzo about putting this documentary together. And look, Brian is here today. Brian is like getting situated because he walked in the door as we were going on the air. Good morning. How does it feel to sleep in late? Uh, It doesn't feel good because I was up at 7 in the morning. I have finals today. Well, you were actually up at 3 in the morning because you were on Twitter. Yes, I was up. Well, I was up working on my paper, so I went to sleep around 4, woke up at 7.30 to go drop off my brother at at summer school, Mm -hmm. which is... I don't remember summer school starting at seven forty-five, but that's the, that's the time that there that he starts now. When I when I went to summer school to take elective classes like typing, yeah, yeah, it started like regular school hour. I I mean I drop him off. He looks miserable, and then from there I ran the rest of the errands that I had to. And, well, of course he's going to look miserable. Oh yeah, yeah. But I'm here. I'm good to go. I'm I'm ready. I'm excited. Uh, you know, speaking of Twitter, so I saw who's coming on today as you tease at the beginning of the program so i'm excited to you're excited because barbara's calling today yeah. <laughs> see this I, i'm getting the pattern here you know if brian's too tired and he doesn't want to come in he's, he looks and he sees who's coming in just like i knew there was no way he was missing carol cook in may you would never miss carol cook no no i try not to miss programs i mean i'm as on top of it as i try to be <laughs> Try harder. I love the show, so I'm here. I'm here. (laughs) Well, you're going to love what we're going to talk about until Barbara calls, because we're going to talk about Cars 3. The embargo got lifted today. We had the junket this weekend and the press conference, which was filled with numerous luminaries. Owen Wilson, Army Hammer, Cristela Alonso, Kerry Washington, Nathan Fillion. Uh, Leah Delaria, Isaiah Whitlock, Larry the Cable Guy, and of course, Cars 3 director Brian Fee and producer uh, Kevin Rayher. 
Um, the film is absolutely beautiful. You will totally appreciate it. It opens this Friday in theaters nationwide. Um, you will totally appreciate and you'll be able to see the improvement in technology, the advancement in technology since in the past 10 years when cars first came out. Um, this particular story is it's all about mentorship, a life's journey. It is filled with old friends and new friends. Um, writers Kyle Murray, Bob Peterson, uh, and Mike Rich are masters at capturing the heart and embracing the past and the present and bringing them together to create a future. Uh, Mike Rich, you may know, he wrote Secretariat and The Rookie, uh, two extremely, extremely amazing comeback stories, which in a, in a big sense is what Cars 3 is all about, as Lightning, Lightning McQueen starts losing a race because the newer and better models of machinery, the new generation, the next generation of NASCAR is happening. And uh, it kind of leaves lightning in the dust. So how do you come back from that? How do you pick the time when you want to retire as opposed to being forced to retire? And what do you do with all the talent that surrounds you? Do you step aside? Are you car enough to give somebody else the spotlight? Um, all of these things are addressed in this incredible comeback story. But as I said, a lot of it boils down to mentorship, which means in the case of Lightning McQueen, there is a lot, a lot of Doc Hudson. As you all know, Doc Hudson is no longer, you know, is gone, as is the man who gave him his voice, Paul Newman. But don't fear, classic film fans and fans of cars, do not fear. Paul Newman is here in this film. Um, there is no voice double. There is no tweaking or cut and paste of voicing. The script, as I found out in speaking with director Brian Fee, after the press conference when I grabbed him and cornered him, uh, but also during the press conference when I asked Kevin and Brian, producer and director, about the legacy and of Paul Newman. But in addition to Paul Newman's legacy, the film also goes back to the early days of NASCAR and introduces new characters based on NASCAR legends. Uh, Louise Barnstormer Nash, she had 38 wins in a seven-year career. She was considered the first lady of racing. Uh, we've got a, a car, a, a, cross, a hybrid vehicle. Smokey, who was Doc Hudson's mentor, based on Henry Smokey Eunuch, who won 57 NASCAR Cup races. And then we've got River Scott, based on Wendell Scott, the first African-American to win a race in a Grand National Series. And, of course, then we've got Midnight, based on Junior Midnight Moon. He won 50 races in the 50s and 60s. And he got his nickname because he used to run moonshine by the light of the silvery moon. So these are new characters celebrating the history of NASCAR. But as I said, we have Paul Newman to celebrate the history of cars and the history of cinema. I apologize for clip number one you're going to hear. Um, the audio at the press conference was not as desirable as we would have liked it to have been. But here is clip one of the press conference with Cars 3. First of all, congratulations, all of you. Uh, an amazing job. Nathan, you are fabulous as Sterling. Thank you. But yeah, I have to ask all of you, we talked about the history of NASCAR that's brought into the film. There's cinematic history that you bring back, and it is a very integral part of Cars 3, and that is Paul Newman as Doc Hudson. What our filmmakers talk about the decision to bring Doc in in such a prominent role using Paul Newman's voice, and also for the actors. Did you ever think you'd be in a film and have a, a credit with Paul Newman? That's a good question. No. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased. You know, we were really lucky. John Lasseter had ran on Cars 1, ran, kept the mic open, and we had all this wonderful, wonderful things. We did transcriptions, and the Newman's Own Foundation was so terrific in supporting us and knew that we were trying to be as respectful as possible. With, uh, with 
with Mr. Weeman's performance and that we weren't just, you know, kind of doing it lighters. Hours of, of uh, voice on tape to kind of come through and find, you know, what was going to help us tell this story. Because there's some nuggets in there we couldn't use because they weren't helpful to telling the story. Uh, but we were, we, we're, I feel extremely fortunate that, that we got, we got the right things. We got exactly what we needed. And we're just lucky at the end of the day. We also went to the original Click and Clack tapes to record, to try to pull some lines from Tom Magliozzi who passed away. Mm-hmm. So out of respect. So there is a lot of history in Cars 3. But because I wanted to know a little bit more, and since I didn't have a one-on-one with our director, Brian Fee, I cornered him after the press conference to follow up on using the, on Paul Newman and his integration into the story and what came first, the story and finding audio clips of Paul Newman or Paul Newman. But hand-in-hand hand with that, I followed up with him on the technology, on the... Uh, the proprietary RenderMan system that is Disney Pixar's. It is amazing. So listen as Brian talks a little more about Paul Newman and the development of the story, and then the the technology of RenderMan. I'm curious, as for Paul Newman, did you actually have to listen to the audio first to see if you could pull stuff to go into the script? Right. Because the script was transcribed, so we had sentences right. down. Like, here's here's everything he said. Um, but how did he say it? Was he on mic? Was he telling the story? Yeah. Um, was he angry? Was it you know? Cause yeah. What was the context? Uh, so we had to listen to everything. Because I can imagine that could have, if you had pre-written the the film, <laughs> and then you went back for the audio, you would have had to rewrite anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it, worked, it really worked out. Um, we at one point considered a satellite, but it was just not the right thing. No, uh, no, no. I mean, so well yeah. done. Thank you. So Thank well you. done. It was a lot of, lot of pillaging. And what you've done with RenderMan and RIS with the lighting and reflection this time, the lighting, the lights, and the reflective nature of the cars, the next-gen cars. This is even upgraded from what they developed for Finding Dory. Well, yeah, we're actually using the same renderer from Dory, but Dory was underwater, and so we we had to. see so you think they they were the first ones to figure out how to use this technology? Take your wire off. But actually, we had what they did didn't help us because we were like, well, we're not underwater. Uh, it was a whole different story for us. But I mean, just the, the result is amazing. You can really see the progression of ten years of technology come to fruition. Yeah. And, and hopefully, I, I want people to think. What I want people to think is, oh, it's the world I remember. So, yeah. But, I, but I'm looking for the better devices. Absolutely. And that having the contrast with Radiator Springs just ties it all together. Beautiful job. Thank you. Beautiful. And that was Brian Fee. And this is what happens when you corner somebody after a press conference just to get a little more information. You get unmiking and lots of noise in the background, um, but you get the information. Um, Cars 3 truly is. It it falls right in line with the franchise. It's a wonderful way to round out this part of the trilogy. Um, you heard me mention to Nathan Fillion, what a great job. Yes, Nathan is, I think, one of my favorite additions to Cars 3, uh, and he plays a sleek, sleek, wonderful and, ow, um, he's cool, he's suave, rich, a casual sterling vehicle, and as he is so named. But, uh, and when you look at Nathan, at Nathan Fillion, that's pretty much what you think of. So envision Richard Castle as a car, and that's what you're going to have with his character. Other standout new characters to come into Cars 3. Leah Delaria is, um, she plays Miss Fritter. A school bus. A school bus with smokestacks shaped like horns. And uh, it's a very important part in the resurrection and of uh, Lightning McQueen and his, and his, his, gust, his uh, gusto and desire to win. Uh, a lot is being made about the fact that now the one of the primary cars in... Cars 3 is Cruz Ramirez, voiced by Cristela Alonso. Disney has always been at the forefront of female empowerment, girl power, uh, and in diversity. And here with Cars 3, 
There is so much diversity. There is so much girl power. But the way it is all integrated into the story, there is nothing that signifies, oh, yeah, it's a girl car, so we're giving her a chance. Oh, yeah, well, these are old cars, so we're bringing them into the mix. Uh, and other, you know, ethnic ethnic diversity comes into play. It is all seamlessly integrated. It is part of the story, and you totally, you don't even think about the diversity aspect. You are just enjoying the integration of this fabulous fabulous film um again it is in theaters on friday and you're in for a treat because there is a short as to be expected called lou uh about a lost and found box at a school and a playground it is a heart warmer it is charming it is sweet um the animation is absolutely mind-boggling and again, it has wonderful messaging of kindness and friendship. And uh, so those are, your, those are two must-see picks for Friday uh, when they open in theaters nationwide. Uh, also opening Friday is a film that I'm very fond of, 47 Meters Down. Can't say anything about it except it's got sharks. Um, and now, talking about... A, Talking about a must-see, I have one of my favorite must-see people on the planet joining me, Barbara Crampton. Hey, Debbie. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to be talking with you and uh, being at the film festival this week and um, showing our movie. So I know. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am, as I, as I told you. When it came to, with LAFF, LA Film Festival, opening Wednesday night in, at the Arclight in Culver City and at other Arclights around town, but the main headquarters and most of the screenings are in Culver City. Thank God, because it's in my nice. backyard and I don't have to drive. Uh, nice. <laughs> but It's a nice venue, yeah. It is, but the only person that I thought of, the first and only person I thought of, oh my God, I really want to have her on the show to talk about the festival and about her film, is Barbara. Oh, thank you so much. Well, thank you know, you. not only are you an icon in the in the soap opera world and you've become an icon in the horror genre, but you also you produce and you help mentor first-time directors, younger talent. Um and you're a veteran of LA Film Festival. I mean, second year in a row, yeah. you've got a film at LA Film Festival. I, you know, it actually it's my third year in a row. Not in a row. Uh, my second year in a row, but uh, a number of years ago, I you know I took a break from acting for a little bit to raise mm-hmm. my family. But um, I was in a movie maybe five or six years ago called You're Next. Yes, and indeed. it didn't premiere at the LA Film Festival, but um, it was in it. There. So and, that, yeah, so that was my first time there. And of course, I love You're Next. I mean, Adam Wingard, Simon Barrett, you know, Ty West is involved in it. I mean, the whole right. pod, the whole group of guys that came up. Most recently in horror together, mm-hmm. and you're next. And uh, Amy Simon, yes, who's also a, a, a producer, writer, director, mm-hmm. and now is in the new Star Wars. Yeah. And Sherry Vincent, who I just think is so underrated by people. I mean, she yeah. she is so kick ass, and she is incredible stunt woman. Sharni, yes, yeah, Sharni yes. Vincent. I, I, yeah, I don't, I can't believe that she has doesn't have her own series right now because. To me, I feel like she was the best final girl that we've seen in a very long time and just an amazing actress in, yeah. in, you know, a, in a movie that did really well. Um, so if anybody's listening, think about Shawnee Vincent and hire her. She's amazing. I mean, I still want a sequel to your next. Right. I think those guys are pretty busy working on other well, stuff. Well, you know, if they weren't so darn good that they get snatched up for other things, you know, right. but it's a testament yeah. But, you know, but you're always working. But, you know, last year at Beyond the Gates took the festival by storm and has been on such a right. roller coaster whirlwind all year. You finally finally released. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. it sitting at number one on iTunes or something when it when it debuted. It was for the first. Yeah. For the first couple of weeks, it was it was number one for a while. And, um, you know, uh, it was trending on Netflix as well for a while, for like a week or two, you know. I mean, we have short attention spans now, so things last <laughs> for a little bit. Um, and they still have to build their momentum, so we're still, we're 
still building the momentum of um, riding the wave of it into the next round of of its life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did really well. Um, it was Jackson Stewart's first um, movie, full-length movie that he did, but he had done a, a bunch of other movies, and uh, just in terms of like short films and and working on uh, on other people's movies, and um, that was his directorial directorial debut, and uh, he knocked it out of the park. So I was really thrilled for him, and and that was my first real foray into producing, and you know we, we did well together, so I'm excited about you know where where it is right now. Yeah, I th- and yeah, and as I said, the public, lo- I mean, people at the festival saw it, loved it, and after LIFF, yeah, they, they did. Yeah. People loved it. So unique, so original. And now you follow that up with <laughs> with Replace and that's premiering yeah. at the festival. That oh my God. I don't think I blinked the entire film. Wow. It is Norbert Keel. You saw a screener. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Norbert Keel, the writer, director, and co writer Richard Stanley. This right. is it blows your mind. It yeah, blows talk about another original story. It, it, this is definitely, uh, you know, nobody's done something like this before. No. This, mm. it, and it just, and you can't help but think about it. And we can't, and as Barbara knows, we can't say too much mm. about the film. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. you know, until it premieres yeah. at the festival. But, you know, there's enough out there about it that we can... We can talk about some of the highlights and, you know, how fascinating this particular story is. Is that something that right. really appeals to you? I mean, you come on board, you came on to Road Games with Abner Pastel. You come into mm-hmm. Day of Reckoning, which, okay, we're not really going to talk about that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can't, you know, uh, not every movie's going to be. I know. That's know, why we'll just uh, gloss I'm over sorry. some of them. That's, that's okay. <laughs> but then we get Beyond the Gates. These are very, and now replace such original concept story concepts. Is that obviously that entices you, but is that hard to find today? Of course. I mean, you know, I think uh, Shakespeare famously said there's only, um, I don't even remember what the exact quote is, but like five to eight stories in the human condition, and we have to keep, um, you know, changing it around. Um, for a current audience. And I think, you know, the good thing about life and about stories is, is that, you know, we keep having to remind ourselves who we are. So we are telling similar stories, but let's tell it in a way that is relevant to the current culture. And I think if writers think about that, you can come up with endless stories because the culture is changing and the mores are changing and people's ideals are changing. So if you tell it from the point of view of the people today, you can continue to tell different stories. Mm -hmm. So what is it that makes, when you read the script for replace at which we're not, we're not going to ruin anything. If we tell people you get to be an evil scientist. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I would tell people that. <laughs> but, I, but this is what I would say. But Deborah. not, but not really I, evil. No, no. But what I would say is that the the movie really is about this young girl who's played by Rebecca Forsyth, who, in fact, if you don't know, is the daughter of William Forsyth, oh. who's been around forever and is a, an amazing actor. And um, she is. This is a very big role for her and she really knocks it out of the park um but she's having these memory lapses and um she's having flashbacks as well at the same time her skin is deteriorating and falling off and she doesn't know why um and the movie shot really dreamy and and beautiful and she finds a business card of a doctor and then she calls the number and she says, you know, there's something wrong with me. I'm not feeling right. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me, but have, am I under the care of, of, of this doctor's office? And the, um, the receptionist says, well, yes, you actually missed an appointment, so come in. And then she, you know, I, I'm helping her through all this. Um, and she comes in and you, 
you don't really understand what her condition is until the end, very end of the movie. And uh, but yeah, it's, it's the it's the, the wildest condition you could ever imagine. Um, but I, I, yes, I don't think that I'm an evil doctor at all. I think I'm pretty. I think I'm uh, as as I said. I think you know, in our current culture, I'm dealing with something that I think is very important. That and trying to help her with her quest um, and 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 what she's doing. Um, and we're playing around with science a little bit. So when you play around with science, um, you know, there's a few losses along the way <laughs> here and there. Well, there is um, so no, that, that's what I would say about it. There's no doubt that your character, Dr. Krober, is, I mean, very, very focused on the science. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. focused on the science. Right. Um, I'm cure at to the point that at, t- at times she feels it almost you make her almost kind of cold hearted. Yeah, she's trying to stay very clinical rather than get attached to mm-hmm. this particular patient. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I love the right. way you walk that line um, throughout the film. But I'm curious about did you did Norbert or Richard did they do any research into this particular science? Oh sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I and I actually did some on my own. He sent me a lot of articles. Um, uh, I, I I can't even talk about what the science is because that would be kind of giving away. Yeah, we can't, and we don't want to do that. We can't even talk about it. But I will say that um, I live up in San Francisco, and there's an institute up there that um, deals with this particular science. Mm-hmm. And um, after the movie comes out, I can talk about it a little bit more. Maybe when we talk to you at L.A. Film Festival yeah. after the, the movie screens. But um, I, I uh, went and interviewed a couple different scientists about what we're actually dealing with oh. in the movie, and it was pretty amazing um, how far they've come and uh, how far this science actually is going to go in the future. And really the movie's based on some stuff that will be, become normal in 50 to 100 years. Oh, see, and the stuff like that, I am just, I love I love where science mm-hmm. gets integrated, where cinema meets meets science but, and takes it to an extreme, but then we get to actually see it unfold in real time over the decades. And Yeah. Yeah, because right now it feels like science fiction, but it's but you know, a lot of science fiction is based in fact. Just uh, just look at Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, um, there's there's a physicist. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, have you seen the film yet? The finish? I've seen, yeah, I haven't seen the final final. Um, I've seen it maybe, uh, I know there were some tweaks to the music and to the editing, and they added a couple of things. I probably saw it maybe uh, two months before it was completed, and, um, and uh, yeah, I haven't seen the final final, but I've seen mo- most of it. So yeah. you have seen the beautiful work of your cinematographer, Tim Peter Kuhn. Unbelievable. I was really blown away by that. I had no idea. Yeah, the cinematography is ridiculous. I, I, it's shot incredibly beautiful and interesting, and it's very dreamy. I haven't seen a movie shot quite like this yeah. uh, that, I, that I can reference and say, oh, it's like blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't even know what to compare it to. And I he, don't know. Maybe you know. You watch more no, movies than I do. <laughs> I mean, the, because of the use of color, and it, it's not its not a giveaway to say a lot of turquoise gets used in this film. Mm-hmm. Turquoise is not normal. People don't use turquoise enough as far as I'm concerned. But <laughs> it is, I mean, it is so beautifully shot and then contrasted yeah. and complemented with various reds and other tones mm-hmm. and different types of lighting effects that can that just send your mind reeling. I was unfamiliar yeah. with Tim's work. I know he's done a lot of uh, German documentaries and shorts in Germany, mm-hmm. but once yeah. people see Replace, American audiences are going to know this guy's name and filmmakers are going to be running to get him. Yeah, I I'm working on a on a feature right now with a with a gal, Axel Carolyn, and she actually this movie premiered in Brussels, and um, she saw it there. She was on the jury in Brussels, and 
that's the first thing she did. She she went up to Tim and she said, "Can you work in the United States? I want you to do my next movie." Yeah. And Axel Carroll, she's wonderful. I adore her. I interviewed her a few years yeah. ago for um, the film she did. She didn't speak any English. She was the warrior oh. in it. Um, Centur was it Centurion? Centurion, yeah, yes, mm-hmm. yes, with Michael Fassbender. A long time ago. Yes, yeah. with Michael Fassbender, half naked. Mm. <laughs> I, I didn't see it, but I would have. Now I'm going to. <laughs> so and because that was really her first film, and yeah. she just when she is on screen, she commands the screen just with oh, her presence wow. and the look in her eyes. Oh, oh my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're working with her, see that film. And okay, yeah. you will really appreciate. Yeah, I will. It's amazing. She's an intense person too. She's um she's super smart and and interesting and uh yeah, we're working on developing something together. Um but I haven't seen her acting work. I know she started out as an actor and then um you know, she did some journalism work and then she decided she wanted to be a filmmaker. So she's she did Soulmate as well mm-hmm. as a director, and then she was the producer and director, uh, one of the directors on Tales of Halloween, which was came out a couple of years ago, which um, did really well. And her segment in particular, I thought, was quite good. Oh, well, now, see, now you have a viewing assignment. Yeah. You okay. Ha- you have a viewing assignment. doing assi- it, Debbie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've got to ask you, because you're kicking off LAFF week here for me. So what is, mm. what? Would you say, what is it about L.A. Film Festival that you really appreciate and what appeals to you as a producer and an actor? Well, look, we're here in the hub of where it's all happening. Um, This is L.A., and a lot of uh, movies are springboarded from, you know, studios to independent movies, and people people move here to work in the industry and, and network with other people and put projects together and what better festival to show your movie at than the LA film festival. And I do think also since they moved from downtown to Culver city and and last year was the first year they did that, um, they get more distributors and um, uh, to come and see the movie because they're at work and then they, they, they come that evening to Mm -hmm. see the films. And so you get a lot of people that are uh, really in the know about movies coming to see it. Um, a lot of people, um, you know, uh, actors and, and, and um, agents and people that are looking for new talent, they'll, they'll come to the L.A. Film Festival because it's in their backyard. And there's, there's not a more knowledgeable audience than, than L.A. Mm-hmm. And the venue um, in Culver City now is absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and, and summery, and, and there's great restaurants around there. And it, it's, just, it's just an amazing festival, and I think... Um, obviously, the, the programmers have very good taste since I've had three movies there. So um, I admire them for their good taste in, in choices. And, and of course, you know, we get to, we'll get to do our interviews, I think, on Thursday. Jim's setting the, I mm-hmm. think, at the Culver Hotel again, which you can never right, go great. You can't go wrong there. And then, of course, I think, personally, it adds a lot of mystique and majesty to the film festival. When you walk out of the theater and you look to your right... And there you see David O'Selznick's old, st- the big mansion, Culver Studios. Mm-hmm, right. Every time you turn right. on Gone with the Wind, there it is. Um, and, yeah. you know, it used to be Desi Lou. It used to be Thomas Inn Studios. Mm-hmm. That is, you were standing, you know. And for the, a lot of these young filmmakers, I think that can be very impactful. And can really, I think so, too. And can yeah. really help mm-hmm. them get a grasp on just what this industry is. Right. But yeah, there's a certain amount of intimidation that comes Mm -hmm. with, um, you know, I do work with a lot of new young filmmakers and I think there's, there's a sense of intimidation, but there's a sense that they want to feel like they belong. But I think every great filmmaker has felt like that when they were first starting out too. So, you know, and, and when you're in the presence of, um, you know, where these history began for movies and, you know, what, Los Angeles has been able to do and for the film business you you feel the weight of that you mm-hmm. know and um and I think LA Film Festival makes people feel like they belong they you know they're right to be here you could be a first time filmmaker but but you 
you have you own it if you have a good movie and they've chosen you. Mm-hmm. And of course, this year L.A. Film Festival falls right in the middle of Culver City's centennial year. So Culver City has oh, a lot wow. of, of centennial stuff going on too. So I didn't even know that. That's great. Yes, and since I am on the Time Capsule Centennial Committee, there will be little artifacts from the film festival that will get included in the time capsule that gets buried later this year. The time capsule gets buried. Where does it get buried? Well, we haven't decided yet. That has to be voted oh. on by the city by the city where it's getting interned in Culver City, but there will be we are working on that now. Oh. So there will be little tidbits from this L.A. Film Festival that will be in Culver City's Centennial Time Capsule. And then is it going to be excavated in 100 years from yep. now? Or 50, or, 50 or 100 years, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So, And since That's I'm funny. on the committee... Who knows? There might be an image or two from Replace that gets included in there. Oh. Wow. Just Debbie, saying. Thank you. <laughs> Just saying. That would be an honor. Well, my friend, it has been an honor and thrill to have you today. I have Lorenzo Stefano holding. So I'm okay. going to say goodbye to you. I will see you right, on here. Thursday. Are you doing the opening night red carpet on Wednesday? You know, my stepson is graduating from college on Friday. And so I'm flying after our interviews up to Washington, mm. uh, Evergreen State University, to, to watch him graduate. So I won't be at the screening, but I'll be around until Thursday. And oh. I'll see you. And maybe I'll see you on the carpet Wednesday night for the opening of the festival. I think we're going to do that. I, I think we might do something like that, yeah. Okay, fine. I'll be on there. Come find me. All right, dear. Thanks and for I having will me see- on your show. Thank you so much, Barbara. Bye. All right. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Barbara Crampton. She has replaced at L.A. Film Festival this week. And now I am so excited to have Lorenzo. Is it DiStefano or DiStefano? The first one. DiStefano. Welcome, Lorenzo, to, to Behind Hi, the Lens. Uh, this is such a uh, such a treat to have you on the show today. Thank you for holding while we were wrapping up with Barbara Crampton. Um, sometimes we no, get, sometimes really used to the LA Film Festival as well. It's trying in on that. <laughs> yes. Well, have you had films in the LA Film Festival before? No, but no hard feelings. You know, it's a, it's a great, uh, I was in Filmax some years ago. Remember Filmax? Yes. It was the beginning of that. I do. Well, you have a one. You have an amazing film that is that is coming out this week on Friday, June sixteenth. I'm sorry that you're going up against Cars three, but <laughs> but can interpret competition. We'll consider this alternative alternative movie going. How's that? Alternative movie going. Yeah. But you know, hearing is believing. This is. An incredible documentary about an amazing young woman, Rachel Flowers. Um, talk to me about how the, how Rachel's story came to you that led you to want to do this documentary. Sure, happy to. Um, I had made a couple of music films before and uh, wasn't really looking to do another one, but a friend of mine... Uh, the guitarist who Rachel was in his group at the time invited me to come down and hear her. And uh, here in Ventura at a club, it was January 18th, 2014. And, uh, you know, the antenna went up and I realized that uh, she just knocked me out, first of all. Uh, she was 20 at the time. And uh, we met her mom, Jeannie, and uh, they had been approached by some filmmakers before, but it, nothing really developed from it. So I think they were a little wary, uh, especially being people who weren't looking to capitalize or promote. They're just living their lives, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I grew to appreciate more and more. This was not a fame-seeking talent here, which being in L.A., you know, that everybody's on the make for something, you know. Um, and uh, so we just began filming a couple months later in April, of 14 and 
we ended up filming 53 days over almost a two-year period. So it, this little story about a, a, a little person in a, in a little house in a little town took on a bigness that uh, we didn't realize at first it was going to have. Yeah, and what's so amazing about Rachel is, I mean, she is a prodigy. If ever there was, she is definitely a prodigy. Um, how many, I forget, how many instruments does she actually play? Well, keyboard is her first, and by keyboard we mean acoustic piano and the electric uh, electric piano, mm-hmm. you know, um, with all of its variations and, and abilities. Uh, drums, uh, both digital and acoustic drumming, uh, a guitar, ukulele, bass, some saxophone. Um, yeah, she's uh, omnivorous, you know, uh, musically. She sings very well and is... is uh, constantly work, working with a voice teacher every week. So it's a person who taught us all a lot, and I think hopefully the viewers of the film, uh, she's motivated not by externals, but by just curiosity. And uh, the prodigy part puts her, separates her from most of human beings and our abilities. But um, from having been born 15 weeks premature, uh, weighing 1.5 ounces, and mm-hmm. given some question as to her survivability of all that. Uh, it makes it even more impressive where she is now and where she might be going, you know? Yeah, and, and something that I truly love and appreciate with the documentary and your approach is you don't approach the documentary uh, the, from the standpoint, Rachel Flowers is blind. You approach it from the standpoint, this young woman is an incredible musician and composer. Mm. Uh, and she well, you know, just you, and she oh, just sorry, ha- and she just happens to be blind. Yeah, right. Because you know, listen, you, there's so much out there that is trying to categorize music, film, woman's film, Asian film. You, you need a way into these sometimes ignored or overlooked uh, areas. But once you're there, like disabled person, black person, so on. These are people, you know. And so we, we dispense with the, because you need to explain the the blindness. I think it is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the fact that her dad also has vision issues, totally disassociated from hers. Um, and then we get out of the way with it. And, yeah. you know, dispense with it, deal with it appropriately, and then move on. And I think you kind of almost forget, even when watching Rachel, uh, that she is blind. Yeah. And that's good. I think it's, you know. So how did you go about approaching, telling this story? You know, documentarians, each one has a different uh, methodology at putting together a documentary. Oftentimes, you cannot plan out or or pre-script something. Sometimes you can. Did you have an idea of where you were going to go with telling Rachel's story over this two year, two years of her life? Or was it more or less shooting and going organically to see what was unfolding? Well, the la- the latter really, because we didn't, as in most documentaries, unless you're doing an agenda-based piece, you know, mm-hmm. uh, an expose of, of whatever it might be, uh, that's your goal. And that can be okay. I mean, we need all kinds of documentation, you know. Um but I've never used the narrator in any of my films, even though I'm a writer. I, I, I don't go there. I like to find that, and it's a lot harder to make these kinds of films where you, we spend a year editing, and in that year you find the film or the film finds you. Um, but we just filmed life as was going on. Um, we uh, we did, of course, influence it by booking things like the Libby Bull, mm-hmm. uh, the Dweezil Zappa thing. He knew about her, but we kind of help to make that happen. Uh, you know, Arturo Sandoval. So there was some filmmaker influence there, but we tried to stay organic with it mm-hmm. and just film it well. Um, you know, I produced and directed this, and uh, people have asked me, you know, I frankly think the role of director is often overemphasized. And, and I say that being a director. Um, in this particular case, producing is the key. What you film, what you don't film, getting permission, setting it up, and then the director, in this case the same person, uh, but even if it's not, comes in and, and does their thing, which is basically don't screw it up. You know? <laughs> and uh, of, 
and now film it properly, you know, sensitively, and then. But it's a producing medium in, in a lot of ways, maybe more than than narrative films, you know. You know, and I'm curious, Lorenzo, because you do have a strong editing background going back into the '80s. Um, does does that help you as a producer and as a director for a documentary like this, or some of your other projects that you have done, because you look at things with an editor's eye? As much as you can in a documentary, because you're basically just sucking up material and, and doing it in a sensitive way. But yeah, I think uh, my instincts as a young man in my late 20s when I began pursuing getting in the union in L.A. I worked for National Geographic for a couple of years in L.A. as an assistant editor. I kind of lied my way into that job. If anyone's listening from there, I'll <laughs> apologize now for that. Uh, and I had no idea, you know, I'd made a couple of short films, but what a cutting room is like. It's, you know, 300,000 feet of an- elephants running around, you know. What do you do with that? Um, but, uh, and then I got in the union uh, on a film called The Black Marble, a Joseph Wamba film, and worked on The Blue Lagoon for 11 months as an apprentice editor, and then gradually edited myself, um, worked with a couple of Oscar-winning editors, Richard Halsey and William Reynolds. And, uh, you know, I was sucking it all up. I was just, that coming from Honolulu, I had no business being in here. Mm-hmm. No co- connections or all that. So I th- highly recommend editing as a uh, entryway into filmmaking. Even now, uh, it's a science, and it's you're, you're separated from the frenzy of production uh, in this laboratory atmosphere. And uh, that's where it's made. People who know anything know that. Um, and it's helped my writing. It certainly helped uh, being able to work with younger editors who have the technical thing down, but tend to not have worked on a feature-length arc, mm. story arc. They usually do short things. So it was a good collaboration between generations. You know. And, of course, you had your editor here on Hearing is Believing was Kevin Wilson. Kevin Wilson's 20, well, he was 25 when we started. He's from Denver. He answered a call I did on... Stage 32, you know that website? Yes. A lot of people are connecting. And uh, it's hard to find people who, with a lot of experience who could afford to work with me for so long, for so little. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kevin stepped up, and he, he did a mammoth job. And he had similar sensitivities as mine. And um, so that was a good collaboration. I also worked with a, a veteran editor. I've done several films with Sergio Palermo, who... Uh, did it several sequences for us and uh, and a lot of other people who weren't editors who we just said hey cut this and let me see it and uh, we lifted a lot of boats with this project a lot of our unit photographer was a wedding photographer and she became an excellent unit photographer camera people who just shot or videographers became camera people which and they really understood the difference between how you shoot an event and how you make a film. So everybody, even me, you know, in, in embracing the new technology, DSLRs, drones, and so on, um, we all kind of met the challenge. And, and with Rachel at the at the center of it all, you know, the responsibility we had to tell the story well. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because I know Rachel had been featured on 60 Minutes a few times about mm-hmm. more than 10 years ago. Did you look at those 60-minute episodes at all to, for any kind of guidance or direction of her past to understand where she was now? Oh, sure. Yeah, they were inspirational to know that she'd been acknowledged. Uh, that was through her association with David Pinto mm-hmm. at the Music Academy of the Blind, Academy of Music for the Blind, which is still around. Um, and David's in the film as one of her principal teachers, and... Uh, He'll be coming to the screening on Friday at the music hall, and so there's a continuity there. Um, yeah, just to see her as a as a child, uh, basically she was, uh, uh, I think, the 2005 and 2008, which would put her about 14 and mm-hmm. 16. Uh, yeah, and that was that was great to have uh, see that kind of acknowledgement early on from Leslie Stahl and the 60 Minutes people. Mm-hmm. Cause that always 60 minutes to this day and throughout his history always adds a level of excellence and credibility to any story. And, it, and I think, in well, yeah, they do. 
and to expo to showcase Rachel to the world even then and then to now meet up with her again through your camera and your producing and directing. I think that's, you know, it's a fabulous way to to follow Rachel's journey and feel like you're a part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, people, we all do respond to brands, you know, and this is branding. It's, it's the age of branding. Uh, and people do need a little help getting into the story. I, I, my feeling is that we're all sort of bombarded with, what's important, you know, Hollywood has been somewhat guilty of, of that, uh, not just Hollywood, but, you know, the whole media uh, mm-hmm. uh, industry of blowing things out of proportion, both good and bad, you know. Uh, and so we try to deal with the great that exists in the small mm-hmm. with this and sort of invert the mirror. Uh, but people do need help getting into it. They're so distracted. And uh, maybe, maybe a film like this or Rachel's story is a kind of, small antidote to uh, the craziness and it gets you maybe regrounded a little bit like what's life like for the people you never know about. Mm -hmm. So how many hours of footage did you and your editors cull through to put together the story that we now see? And were you editing throughout the time that you, the 53 days that you were shooting or did you just wait to get everything at one point and then cull through it? Yeah, um, well, we we started, we didn't have Kevin till deep into the filming. Uh, mm-hmm. So I had several people begin to cut sequences, you know. Um, and then he came on board and it really started to pick up. Um, I brought him into Ventura, where I live, uh, one week a month for about five months. We had some face time together. And, uh, and then he took the work back and the notes and we... There's another technological improvement as we were using QuickTime and to see sequences and sending notes. And uh, it worked well. It was hard. And I think it was about, we tried to count the footage once. It's a little elusive because everything was multi-camera, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, close to 400, I would think. 400 hours. hours. Wow. Wow! Yeah, and you figure the movie is a uh, is 104 minutes, so that uh, that's a huge ratio, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, and there were things that didn't make it in the film, you know. There's things that we didn't. I don't have any regrets. I don't think we missed anything huge, but uh, um, just the motto there: if there were T-shirts to be made, it would say "Just keep filming." <laughs> is, that, is that always been your motto, Lorenzo? Well, certainly affordable now. When it was filmed, it was uh, you couldn't you could say that, but you couldn't really do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Heaven's Gate, you know, one point five million feet of film, um, but uh, perhaps a little excessive. But um, yeah, it is. I think that you can overdo everything. You can know when do you stop editing. You, you know, you have to know just your instincts kick in, maybe your experience, and saying, okay, we have it now. Let's. Let's get to work finishing it. You know. So what what kind of learning curve did you have as a direct as a producer and director with Hearing Is Believing? What did you learn in the process of making this documentary that you will now take forward into other works? Well, the value of clarity and, and honesty and discovery, you know, is always there. I've always had been a curious person. I'm not didn't go to film school and self-taught, and also by the people I worked with in editing. I should, again, repeat the value of that continues to benefit me. Um, but uh, I think the documentary form, I try to evolve it. You know, I've, I've never used a narrator, uh, as I said, but uh, instead of, we did do a few talking head interviews which you, with Mom and a couple other people, but mostly they were to generate voiceover. Mm-hmm. You know, very seldom would cut to it, and if we did, it was very brief, just to anchor who's it, who's it coming from. But I, I realize that so much things than interviews that give you even more information. Um, Rachel and Arturo Sandoval, for instance, uh, he said something I couldn't have written more perfectly when he says, "Music is like a bomb for the soul. You know, uh, it uh, it keeps your spirit alive." You may remember that that sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, Weasel, what he says about her, 
she uses her ears as her eyes for the world. You can't write that stuff, Mm-mm. you know? No. Um, and so it scenes are better than interviews. And I, I learned that, and I use that more in this than any other other films I've done. And I think for the better, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm very curious because you have a very eclectic resume. In addition to wielding your way through Hollywood over the years, you've also done still photography, um, directed theater, written screenplays. Do you have a favorite discipline that you like to do, or is or is Did it just think- or is it just as much as you can do to just keep going and exploring the creative juices? You know, it's a question Rachel's often asked about what kind of music do you prefer, and her answer is usually all music, you know, everything. Um, I think it makes it tricky to, for people to identify you in a business. I've, I've had some issues, or people have had some issues, maybe like, what do you do, Lorenzo? You know, what is it that you do? And uh, I don't think that should stop people from exploring all the aspects of their talents. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, coming out from outside the business, uh, it was fascinating to me. Uh, still photography was a great way into framing the world, you know. Uh, that's something that some people never quite get, is how do you isolate composition and, mm-hmm. and get a handle on what's in front of you within a frame. And that's at the beginning stages of any kind of image making, whether you're a painter or filmmaker or whatever. Um, Theater is, is vital. You know, I've written three plays and, and uh, directed a bunch of plays. And uh, that was something that people who I respect and admire told me I should do. He says, you know, you need to work with actors. Uh, this is not easy what to say to an actor if you're not an actor. Um, you have to like and love actors, be able to even hope to talk to them uh, in, in their language, which is usually not a whole lot of language. You know, it's intuitive and helping them find a place but uh, and so I'm a failed musician myself so um, uh, these films are these three music films I've made now including Hearing is Believing have been a way to uh, reduce the humiliation of being a, uh, a musician an aspiring musician to understanding musicians and music if, even though I'm not able to play it you know mm-hmm. so I don't know I guess I'm you know, thank God I have a curious gene uh, that has allowed me to... Because, you know, films take so long to make. What are you going to do in between? Just sit right. around, you know? Uh, so these other disciplines became part of that, uh, just to keep exploring, I guess. Mm-hmm. The human so, condition, you know, and what's going on around us. And in today's world, the human condition is changing, I think, more rapidly than at any time in history. You think so? I don't know if it's if it's the perception of changing, or you know, we're being confused about what it's really like to be empathetic. Uh, some people will never get that, you know, and they live in a world of hate or mm-hmm. suspicion. Um, I grew up in a multi-ethnic world in Hawaii, even though there were issues, and there was Kill Howley Day in high school, where if you were white, you better not go to school that day, you know, mm-hmm. which was kind of interesting uh, <laughs> because you might get picked on. Um, but overall, it was a harmonious uh, place. Whereas if you grew up in a place where, you know, your parents were biased or even racist, uh, it's harder work to, to grow up and shed that mantle, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. I, I like to think that, uh, it's, you know, the sound Pollyanna, but there's goodness there. And I think Rachel, uh, her diligence, her stamina, and her talent... Uh, as an example, you know, how maybe to conduct yourself with dignity out there. Mm-hmm. Well, Lorenzo, we're all out of time for the show today. I hate to say goodbye to you. This this has been a delight talking to you about this documentary well, and your filmmaking. Yeah, I hope you'll come back on the so show. Much. I hope you'll come back on the show again. Well, thank you, and I hope people uh, uh, go to hearingisbelievingfilm.com and as a, as a, may I mention the screenings really quickly? Absolutely. Okay, I'll give it to you real fast here. June 16th, which is this coming Friday, at the Music Hall Theater on Wilshire, the Lemley Music Hall. We'll be there, Rachel and, and Jeannie and I, for the 7 p.m. screening and the Q&A afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's 16th through the 22nd. 
to be at the Cinema Village, where uh, I'll be there with my executive producer, Patty Channer. And then uh, we're in several cities, and then we come out on VOD June 20th through Gravitas Ventures and DVD and Blu-ray July 11th, also through Gravitas Ventures. So we're getting it out there in a kind of a quick uh, three-week period, and everyone can check it out. Well, and I can't encourage them enough to check it out. Hearing is, is believing, and you will believe after you see this documentary. Lorenzo, thank you again so much, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks, Debbie. All the best with Behind the Lens. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you, Lorenzo. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. And that was Lorenzo Stefano. That is all the time we have today. We'll be back again next week. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. 